Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The producers of this podcast recognize the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children. You want to know me secret, do you? How I'm going to pull off a job like this? Well, there's three points you've got to consider to take on this sort of enterprise. First, you need to pick your crew. They've got to have a range of skills and do as they're told. Second, timing. They've got to be where you want them at precisely the moment you want them there. They get there too soon and they stick out like dog's balls, get there too late and, well, the whole thing's down the dunny, isn't it? Then there's the all-important third element... Someone's got to be in control. 
someone's got to see the whole enterprise playing out like a general, directing his troops. But ladies and gentlemen, the most important thing you need to pull off a job like this, the thing that I have by the bucket load, is confidence. Confidence. That's actor Jared Dapparis as Joseph Theodore Leslie Taylor, the lead role in the miniseries Underbelly Squizzy. Pretty much every person who's ever been immortalised in an Underbelly series will tell you it's a pack of lies and their character was nothing like them in real life. Well, Squizzy Taylor has been dead for about 100 years, but today we're joined by someone who knows more about him than he possibly knew about himself. This is Australian True Crime with Michelle Laurie and Emily Webb. Come with us as we go beyond the news cycle to find out how people become killers, how people become victims and what happens next. Roy Malloy is so fascinated by the life and times of Squizzy Taylor that he wrote and self-published a biography about him. It's called Squizzy, The Forensics, The Man, The Vendetta. The book is excellent, and it's hardly surprising because, as you're about to learn, Roy is a tireless researcher. And he had to be because there's so little information available about Squizzy Taylor and his associates. It's actually astounding that we don't know more about these people and this era of Australian crime history. Because on one hand, the stories Roy tells and backs up with lots of hard evidence are outrageous to the point of being almost unbelievable to us today. But on the other hand, they're very, very familiar. So strap yourself in for an extraordinary ride through the streets of the impoverished inner city of Melbourne around the turn of the last century, when the suburbs of Fitzroy, Collingwood and Richmond were violent, crime-ridden slums. Our story begins, though, with the Taylor family living miles away in genteel seaside Brighton. He's born into a not, a, not an affluent family, but they live in a nice part of the world, down near Brighton, near the sea. And his dad has a very good job as a wheelwright making carriages. Dad dies when Squizzy's very young. Squizzy's the third of uh, ten children. And they're born into this tiny little cottage. But when dad dies, there's a, an economic crisis going on and a, a massive recession and it throws the family into poverty instantly. Uh, dad had a heart attack at 38. He left behind a widow and all these children. So mum very quickly farmed her kids out variously to uncles, aunties. But the oldest three, the oldest was 12. She went, just did her own thing. The next one down was a kid called Claude. Claude is the making of Squizzy. He's genuinely psychopathic. Now, he likes hurting people. He likes it a lot, does it for pleasure, and doesn't need any encouragement. I put out uh, the feelers in a lot of places to try and gather information because there's so many people that think they know a Squizzy Taylor story. So when I began the, the cultivation period looking for you know information, I made two Facebook pages, one called Squizzy Taylor Stories and one called Australian Crime History. And I'd post Squizzy Taylor material there periodically and people would in the comments say, well, my dad had a barber who had a roommate who had a bookie and he knew Squizzy Taylor. <laughs> you know, I followed up 1,200 of those stories and found half a dozen that were very provable. One of them was a, a descendant of Squizzy's sister. One of his younger sisters, ironically, had, had nothing to do with Squizzy, wouldn't, but she became a 16-year-old at Melbourne Uni 
and became part of the women's temperance movement, the women's vote. She was this powerhouse of women's liberation in this country as a lawyer. So temperance for those, and for any of our listeners who don't know, I know what temperance means because my grandmother was also a member of the Temperance League when I was a child, much to my father's amusement. <laughs> so that means non-drinking, doesn't it? You're opposed to alcoholism. That's right. Absolutely. And um, from her, I met this chap and he's in his 60s. And he said, look, the, the actual name, it's, it comes part from slang. It was a time when the word squiz was changing from taking uh, from urinating, I'm going to take a squiz to be, and you'd call someone a little squiz, little shit. It's oh. the kind of to taking a look. I'm taking a squiz, and it, it's kind of along the lines of. And I've, this is I'm gleaning these little bits of information from a lot of sources, but it's also along the lines of I'm just going to go take a piss. I'm just going to go take a look. But Claude was into everything. He was the kind of crook that never missed an opportunity. He was had a finger in every pie. But when Dad died. Um, Squiz, uh, Leslie Taylor, that we know as Squizzy, was sent away to Bendigo where Dab was from. Uh, Dab was born the son of a gold miner in Bendigo. And so he was sent to live with a Presbyterian uh, minister. And that's the first time we really see him appearing in, in the media. We see him coming up in uh, pantomimes, poetry reading competitions, but anything theatrical. And that becomes a big feature of who he is as a an adult, very theatrical. But by the time he comes back and he's hitting Melbourne again. He's up the front, not afraid to be seen. A lot of crooks don't want to be seen. It's not, it doesn't serve a purpose, but he doesn't mind at all. So we we kind of have this childhood of Squeezy Taylor that we know is Squeezy coloured with violence heavily, probably, I'm going to say there's probably violence in the home and that's my own personal assumption, but I don't have any proof for that. I would have to estimate there's violence in schools. I did meet a, a family who... They said that their grandfather, a fellow called Fred uh, Smythe, he met Squizzy when he was in school and he was in grade five. Squizzy was in the class and the last day of school, the teacher said, right, you come up the front, you're going to get a belting. Squizzy jumped out the window, ran away. That was his last day of school apparently. Now that's a very far-fetched story to try and prove, but I went and found the records for that class and lo and behold, there is a Leslie Taylor in that class with Fred Smythe. Fred also then went on to be a uh, taxi owner. He had two cars in a garage in Coburg on Sydney Road at the time when Squizzy was at large and he drove Squizzy around. So you've got a very reliable set of stories there to know that Squizzy's school life probably involved abuse, uh, whether it be a thing of the time or not. He was being harmed by people above him. He probably grew to think that violence was acceptable. And what makes a psychopath, we can never tell, but... You end up with a guy in the lead up to 1918, which is the beginning of the Fitzroy Vendetta. You end up with a guy who is uniquely violent, has a flash temper. He's five foot two and he's built like a jockey, but he's Fagan brilliant at pickpocketing. I suppose if his, if we know that his brother, his older brother, Claude, has a history of violence, it's not a stretch, is it? It's not hard to believe that he is probably being victimised at home. He's one of 10 children. His mum is widowed and she's gone from a fairly privileged financial situation to impoverished overnight. And he's, he's quite small in stature. It's not hard to believe that he could have been bullied. You do get a benchmark with Claude. Claude sets the scene as a backdrop to compare Squizzy to. Claude becomes the first moment where we see how how Squizzy operates. 1907, we, we see the first 
the first newspaper stories about a group of lads and they're walking down the street and they've had this interaction with another local boy in Fitzroy on Young Street. Now, Young Street is where the Rainbow Hotel is. And most of that real estate is very authentic to what it was back then. A lot of the houses are still there. The lady whose whose grandfather owned the blacksmiths on Young Street, where Squizzy and Claude probably got steel bars. And they became the steel bars they beat this kid almost to death with. An old lady walks out of her house and says, what are you doing? And Squizzy whips out a pistol and he stands there brandishing it, flashing it around, telling people where to go and not to look. But he's not actually hitting the kid with the steel bars himself. So then we get a pattern that you see the beginning of there where Squizzy likes to find other people that are usually bigger than him, more brutal, more willing, and he doesn't often get his hands dirty. Now, there's a lot of crooks with great nicknames in his era. And, I mean, that nickname, I first heard it when I was, I think I was probably maybe eight or nine. And my dad, I was raised in Asia, and my dad was watching an American TV show about Al Capone, and he said, you know, we had one of them, Squizzy Taylor. And that name, it has this a theat- a theatrical nature about it, but there's also a, a brooding darkness about it that you can't quite put your finger on. Now, there's there's criminals called, there's one called the Plum, and the Plum is a great, he's, he's the king of thieves, the same era. Ned Kelly, uh, Captain Moonlight, you know, but Squizzy, he, he breaks apart from a lot of thieves because he starts to organise. He, he starts to organise bigger blokes and nastier blokes. And the first one is probably a guy called Brush Thompson. In the Squizzy Underbelly TV show, we see Brush Thompson almost all the way through his career, and that's not accurate. They more or less come up with this one plan. I don't know how Squizzy worked out, but he works out that there's a bank manager in Warrandyte that's taking the daily takings on a bicycle from one place to another, and he's going to knock this guy over and take the money. Now, they hire a, a rental car, and the kid who's driving it is the worst possible choice they could have had. He's the grandson of Victoria's first premier. He's a member of a civilians league for morality. Like this kid is, his moral compass is straight on. On the journey to mug this bank manager, Brush Thompson, who's enormous, he looks like Lurch Adams. He's a very odd looking bloke. Brush Thompson squeezy say to this driver, we're going to do this crime and cut you in. You're going to say nothing. And he refuses. And it starts to escalate and they kill him. Oh, God. Oh, my God. Yeah, the, and that's squizzy. It, he escalates, boom, and you can't tell. It's pretty grey area what's going to trigger him. Now, whether it was Brush that, that did this or it was squizzy who pulled the trigger, he was never convicted of it, certainly never confessed to it. But that's kind of a breakaway moment. But he does appear in newspapers and we start to see the name squizzy, or they say also known as Squizzy Taylor. But we see at this point a, a witness in the courts who becomes a huge figure, both in Australian crime history and also Squizzy's life, it is a guy called Henry Stokes. Now, Henry Stokes is, again, I'm going to use the, there's only really two references to Squizzy Taylor in our culture. One is the book I mentioned earlier and the other is the Underbelly series. And they paint uh, they paint Henry as a debonair-looking bloke with a pinstripe beard and wearing three-piece suits. He was actually born in England, and he he just is the image of a crime boss. He wears a bowler hat, chewing on a cigar. He's heavy set, big fat belly, and he ran two up schools. Now, there was nothing lavish about them whatsoever, but he comes in contact with Squizzy about this time, and he asks. 
grizzly to stand guard out the front of a house he's rented. There's a street in Goodwood Street in Richmond. If you ever just drive around, go take a drive on Goodwood Street. It's a fascinating bit of real estate because Richmond isn't hilly as such. But on this one little uh, dog's leg in the road, there's one house on the corner. And if you stood there, you could it kind of slopes down one direction and another. You could see any copper coming your way in any direction 20 minutes before they even get to you. And so Squizzy gets to stand out the front of this, this house that Henry's rented, and he's knocked down every wall inside it, and it's just dirt on the floor, backless benches where these guys sit drinking. You don't just get one vice. You don't just get two up in this place. You get women, you get guns, you get sly grog, and Squizzy's out the front, and it's organised to the point where Stokes has bricked into the fence a little box to light a fire in the front fence to keep him warm. It, like, it's pretty organised stuff. This is reminding me so much of Dennis Allen, you know, 80 years later or something. Remember when Dennis Allen bought those houses in um, what is now Cremorne, that part of Richmond? That's right. And he would buy them next to each other and knock down walls or put holes in walls so that they could hand money through and hand things, drugs through the the houses. You know, if, if one house was being raided, for example, they could quickly shoot things through walls and it, they ended up being a maze of uh, escape routes and things. Same area. Certainly there are still known tunnels that lead from these exact buildings Henry owned. And several of the newspaper articles talk about the uh, advanced technology of uh, electric buzzers that Squizzy would press and it would ring a bell inside the room. Yep. And that electricity would travel in far faster than the policeman could. And these guys would run down a tunnel and two or three houses away to escape. And I wonder whether, yeah, you're quite right. I do wonder if that's a legacy. Dr. Chris McConville from Victoria Uni and... Dr. Rob Pascoe also, they've published a little bit about the tunnels that are still there that were Squizzy Taylor related. But Squizzy meets a guy there who has gone, in my understanding, he's gone almost completely unrecorded in Australian crime history. He's a guy called Albert MacDonald. And MacDonald comes, but he's 21 when he comes back from France. And we're talking the beginning of 1918. He's decorated by the Australian government and the French government for what he did in Flanders. And this guy has seen huge amounts of death. How fascinating. So what you're talking about is a young man who's coming back from war, from World War One. He's been decorated, but now, of course, we see this through the filter of PTSD, all of these issues that at the time they wouldn't have thought about. And will kill no problems. Yeah. And there's a lot of the, a lot of those standover men are taking advantage of PTSD-affected soldiers mm. who say, look, I can't hold down a job, but you give me enough money, I'll go do any crime you want. Yeah. And the, just to be clear for anybody listening, it's not the same today. In fact, you, you raised a very good point in a podcast I listened to a year or so ago. Uh, you were talking, and I don't know if it was you or one of your guests that said, in the early 90s, there was a lot more cases where you'd have serial attacks like rape and things in homes that you just don't get now because of CCTV, cameras in every phone. Mm. Now, this is an era where there's also almost no use of fingerprints. Absolutely no DNA. Wow. And yeah. so if I committed a crime and you you didn't see it but you knew I'd done it, you'd get me in court as the prosecutor and you'd say, Roy, you did this horrific crime and all I'd have to do is say, no, I didn't. Mm. <laughs> and your job is then to prove it and yeah. it's very hard to prove a crime. So you've got these blokes who are very willing to commit effortless crimes and very violent. So Albert McDonald and Squizzy Taylor are Henry Stokes' security detail. So then you get this kind of melding of 
a flashpoint. You know where Monty Python is, this group of incredible talents, and they come together. The degeneration in Australia is saying <laughs> you get these incredible talents that all meet it, and what are the chances that that many talents will meet at the same time with the same goal? But you do get that in Victoria right at the same time. There was a group called the Crutchy Push, and if you've never heard of the Crutchy Push, a push gang was it was a, it was a group of young men predominantly. Their women were called soakers, as in always drunk, and they stand on corners in their geographic areas. So the Irish Town Push was a very very dangerous one in Richmond. Squizzy and Claw were loosely uh, affiliated with a push called the. Burke Street rats. There was no hierarchy to the rats. There were just any waif that was stealing was a Burke Street rat. But some of them had real hierarchy, and the Crutchy Push was one of them. Now, the Crutchy Push, its members all had a disability. Most of them were missing a leg. Their leader was a guy called Valentine Keating, and he was also genuinely psychopathic. Probably lost half a leg from the knee down when it was crushed in the quarries in uh, Footscray breaking bluestone and he was renowned for decking cops with his crutch he had half a dozen members he had a bloke on his crew that had half an arm missing he'd sewn a brick into the sleeve and would wield it around his head like a baton we're talking crazy now so their thing they'd just break into a house some just family having dinner they'd go in demand that you feed them and they'd brutalize you unless you did what they said so you got you've got a woman called bridget mahoney who's making sly grog for a boxer named Ted Whiting. Ted Whiting is running all of Fitzroy's sly grog shops, brothels. He's taking protection money from every legitimate business. But he was also an Australian middleweight world champion boxer. He was as famous as Mike Tyson ever was here, right? Finished his career and went back to just flat out a life of crime. Didn't care who knew. No one was really going to stop him either. And he had a gunman called Henry Slater. Slater is called Long Harry. Again, these incredible names. So you've got the boxer who is flanked by a psychopathic gunman who's six foot two. And he's got a brother called Bunny Whiting, B-U-N-N-Y, who's also a psychopath with a gun. And I don't I don't really know if the names Bunny makes him less or more terrifying, right? <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. How tough have you got to be as a bloke to be called Bunny? Absolutely. So years later, after years after these stories in the 1920s, Bunny marries the daughter of the Crutchy Push. Oh, wow. Right. So then you've got Bridget Mahoney making their sly grog. That's that's the Fitzroy crew. Squizzy has a sly grog manufacturer, and they're normally female sly groggers. They're very good at it. They go undetected more easily. And she's a well-known madam called Minnie Clark. Minnie's husband was arrested for being a triple jail escapee. He was a forger who was able to replicate a five-pound note with a human hair and ink, which is the value of about 1500 bucks. He'd make two or three a week and he'd sell them. So she's making Squizzy's slag rock at the moment. So then Squizzy comes together with Henry Stokes and they approach this boxer and they say, we've got this idea. I do believe it's probably Squizzy's idea. It smells of Squizzy. <laughs> On Collins Street, there was a jeweler's shop called Kirkpatrick's. So Collins Street is still one of the main drags in the city. Yeah. 
And in those days, very glamorous, wasn't it? Because we weren't that long out of the gold rush. And during the gold rush, Melbourne was, I think, the richest city in the world for a period of time. So yeah. Collins Street was a mark of that. It's a very beautiful street in those days, a very glamorous street. Absolutely. Now, this is, this building is still there. And this scene where there's a bank robbery at the beginning of the Squizzy Taylor underbelly is, look, that's as close as you'll get. That's in the actual lobby of this incredible domed uh, parquetry floored building where the jeweller was. But Squizzy noticed something that really was small and unnoticeable to everybody else, but the glass doors at the front of the jeweller had handles that were vertical, like bars, went down the front of the glass on both sides, inside and out. Mm. What that meant was that Squizzy could arrange for a robbery to take place and then just put a chain through the handles and lock the guy in. Wow. No alarms. And he could all he could do is wave at people walking past. <laughs> now, the problem then is Squeezy had just come out of jail for reasonably petty things, but he his his jail record reads horrifically. He has so much more time added to his jail sentence because he he just doesn't do his time well, right? And he knows if he gets done done again, they're gonna throw him away for probably 10 years. So he can't risk it. Henry Stokes runs like a business. And this is probably where his mentoring comes in. So he runs two up schools and he, he thinks like a businessman. And I believe it's probably Henry Stokes that says, look, let's partner with the guys from Fitzroy. We'll go and see the boxer, Ted Whiting, and we'll say, you provide one guy, we'll provide another guy, and we'll both provide what's called a clean crook. Now, a clean crook is somebody that is crooked as the day is long, but they haven't been caught for it yet, so they don't have a record. So if they get caught, maybe they'll get a year at best. So it's low-risk crime at that point. So, and and the, the first question would be, well, why didn't Squeezy just ask two of his own mates, right? Probably because they'd abscond with all the loot. If you get two blokes who hate each other to do the job, they'll go their own way at the end and they'll report in for duty afterwards. So it's it's quite a, it's an interesting concept. He's very manipulative, isn't he, Squeezy? He really understands the psychology of human beings. He does, he does. And the, the last player in this incredible trifecta is the his first wife. Now, until very recently, I was completely unable to find any evidence that they were ever married. Her name was Dolly Gray. Now, you know the Collingwood thing song? Good old Collingwood forever. Pardon my singing. Yeah. <laughs> that song, That's different right. words, was, was originally called uh, Dolly Gray, Goodbye Dolly Gray. No. So she's named as a good time girl, but she's a unique character. She's moneyed. She's worked very hard, probably in prostitution, but she's able to buy a house in Bendigo where we first see her. And then we find her again owning a property that's still there in Little Lonsdale Street by 1915. We see Squizzy in the newspaper starting fights with the neighbours with a gun out the front. He's doing security for her. But she had two daughters to a previous marriage when she met him. The husband died in France and she renames her daughters. Uh, her last name was actually Haynes. So she renames her daughters when she marries Squizzy Haynes Taylor. So they're, they're pretty close, even though she's also prostituting one of her daughters uh, from her brothel. She is a very significant player in all this. And you'll see why shortly. But the crime goes off without a hitch. They get away with over 200 huge diamond rings. I mean, the, the worth value of them is five to ten grand per ring. Jeez. So then they would have split the rings, but a short time wow. later the police arrest 
the bloke who Squizzy had do the crime, they arrest him going to Henry Stokes's office. They find Henry there with a cache of rings, but it was more than half. Now, if they split the rings 50-50 with the Fitzroy crew with the boxer, it became very apparent very quickly they hadn't split them honestly. So that's one of the first possible reasons mm-hmm. that Vendetta began. The other one was that by the time it got to court, all of Melbourne's criminal underworld was in the gallery watching. And for no real apparent reason, all the charges against Henry Stokes were suddenly dropped. Now, why? I mean, you're good at this game. You could probably smell this. I can see your face. You probably smell this a mile away. It, it smacks <laughs> someone who's just turned informant, right? Yeah. And that was the assumption. And they, there's a story about uh, written in the newspapers where Squizzy and – sorry, it doesn't name Squizzy, and this becomes a very key feature. It's The newspapers talk about how Henry Stokes and another man left court and they were beaten up by Ted Whiting, <laughs> the boxer, and several others. They sprint down uh, Little Collins Street. They end up near Spencer Street. They're beaten up again but they won't tell the police why. Mm. So you start to see the underworld starting to solve its problems by itself. Right? Mm. So let's go back to Fitzroy now. You've got a boxer who runs Fitzroy with Long Harry Slater and he's got a sly grogger called uh, Bridget Mahoney and she's bringing in his sly. But she's got a manufacturing plant you can't believe. She's got a house in North Melbourne that's one of those typical Victorian two-storey veranda houses, the Victorian kind of... And she's taken up the floorboards on the top veranda, put rails in and put beer bottles in them. So when you knock on the door, say the password, she pulls a string and it drops a bottle like a vending machine. (laughs) You can't make this up, right? (sighs) So very quickly into that process, she's arrested because Squizzy, I believe, has dobbed her in. So she goes to jail and all of a sudden all the Fitzroy is without booze. Oh, Christ. So then Long Harry Slater walks into the brothel owned by Squizzy's sly robber, a lady called Minnie Clark, and he shoots one of her customers in the head. Oh, Jesus. You see how quickly this escalates. Yeah. There's a couple of other key significant crimes that may or may not be, you know, relevant to this. But, look, it might have gone away and fizzled out a little bit. But within months you see this scenario where it might have been to, to test the mood but Dolly Gray, with two of her girls, visits the primary haunt and the main sly grog shop owned by the boxer in Fitzroy. So they stroll into Ted Whiting's grog shop and there on her hand is a great big fistful of diamond rings. Jesus Christ, they're brave, these women. Wow. Yeah, you see it coming. She didn't. Uh, look, I think that the truth of it is she was either spiked or drugged, but she certainly had drunken alcohol enough that any spiking wouldn't have taken much, and then she's horrifically sexually assaulted. Oh, no. He's left naked, left beaten, and all the rings are gone. Oh, no. Now, where Squizzy may have turned his attentions to some of his other dealings, they were still running uh, two-up schools. He was still doing security detail for her brothel. You've just suddenly unleashed a psychopath who loves guns and violence with his first real rage. Anything he'd ever experienced before was nothing compared to what he was about to do. So then this begins what we call the Fitzroy Vendetta. We'll find out what happened in the Fitzroy Vendetta after the break 
And of course, there are links to Roy Malloy's Facebook pages and a link for you to buy his book, Squizzy, in the show notes to this episode. Thank you to patrons Rebecca Babbage, Jeanette Hughes, Lucy McMahon, Kerry DeSmith, Laurie and Hayley Robinson. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Dolly Gray with two of her girls visits the primary haunts and the main sly grog shop owned by the boxer in Fitzroy. So they stroll into Ted Whiting's grog shop and there on her hand is a great big fistful of diamond rings. She was either spiked or drugged and then she's horrifically sexually assaulted. He's left naked, beaten and all the rings are gone. Now, where Squizzy may have turned his attentions to some of his other dealings, you've just suddenly unleashed a psychopath who loves guns and violence with his first real rage. So then this begins what we call the Fitzroy Vendetta. Night after night, you get shooting after shooting of Ted Whiting's property. Now, Ted was, he was a fierce man. He was a very tough guy. But he also was that breed of boxer who didn't probably believe in weapons. And there tends to be that, that kind of view that that's a coward's tool. Squizzy didn't pretend to be anything but a coward. He, he was quite content. But night after night, the media would report more shootings, more shootings, more guys rolled into St. Vincent's with bullets, wounds. Interestingly, a lot of the handguns they're using are very small. We th- seem to think of gangsters with these great big pistols. They're not at all. They're, they're small, usually made by the company Webley, who made a lot of the First World War sidearms for officers that they could. If you're running across the field, you don't want a great big gun. It's got to be small. Nine bullets in the chamber, automatic, and you can just lob it back in your hip pocket. And night after night, they're shooting up nine Webb Street. Now, the high-rise commission flats opposite the Rob Roy and the Champion Hotels in Fitzroy. Where that lawn is is exactly where the Fitzroy Vendetta took place. 
they were slums called the Fitzroy Narrows, and they were really small properties. The house isn't there, and the street almost stops exactly where this would have taken place. So the police very quickly go, you know what, and we've got an all-sarcastic police in, in this mix as well. We've got a group of police known as the Terrible Ten, and they were the police who were the first ever detectives in plain clothes. And they include Sid McGuffey and Fred Piggott, who pioneered Australian uh, forensics. Incredible police, brutal police, but incredible. They, they try to get in front of it. They go, you know what, the only way to do this is let's round up all of them. If we take them off the street and we break them up, we could have a better chance of diffusing this. So they, they head along to number nine, Webb Street, 8 a.m., knock on the door, and they do a roundup of, I think, six different crooks, including Long Harry, Ted Whiting, another guy called Alsop, who is a, another psychopath with rifles. And they, they round them up to arrest them. But true to fashion, they didn't drive there. They literally handcuffed one crook to one detective and then walked them all the way back to the station. Can you imagine the walk of shame that is, and the silence, the stony, prickling silence as those crooks walked with those cops back to the station. That surely was part of it too. Surely that was part of the strategy because I think anyone who, who's never been there needs to know that even now the, the streets are so narrow in those days, really narrow. We're talking about people really living in very close quarters. Violence and everything was very close into your, in your face. And so to walk them back to the station meant that every one of their, every member of their community saw it. Surely that was part of it. The, the, the humiliation of that must have been part of the plan on by the police. Parading them. Probably actually. No, that had never occurred to me. I don't know how it didn't occur to me, but you're pointing out the obvious to me. But, that, that, you know, that is actually a fascinating truism. Yeah, yeah. That's, uh, again, adding to the walk of shame. Yeah. But all the way through this, you keep seeing everybody named except for Squizzy. The, the, the media never names him. And I I still believe that they knew who he was and he knew who they were. Well, surely it's because he was an informant. Surely he was protected by police. There is a bit of that. Earlier in his career, he did dob in a, an abortionist um, and he's he's known for dobbing people in, but I think they were probably afraid for their lives if they named him, uh, that he'd come seeking them. But it's only at the very end of 1919 where it's just too much and it's towards the end of the year and... The Sly Grog Queen, who's making Sly Grog, uh, she, the, Squizzy more or less just walks in through the front door and he starts shooting people. And there are too many witnesses, including a cop who's on the beat. So he finally gets to court and he's slapped on the wrist more or less. But this begins the real notoriety of this is Squizzy Taylor. So this is this is that framing. And I, I say it's framing because it didn't launch him into stellar fame yet, but everybody now knew we've got a quintessential gangster, but also at this time Al Capone's getting known and we're starting to see shoot-em-up movies and newsreels in cinemas. Squizzy was aware of Al Capone. Squizzy was very well-dressed, wasn't he? He was a dandy, whereas some of the others sound to me like they might have been thuggish. And worth mentioning also the clothes that you're wearing, look at your sleeve, look at the cuff and look at the stitching that's in the cuff. Every single one of those stitches until really about this time in history was done by hand. So my great-grandmother in Coburg would be delivered in a brown paper package the panels of shirts and she'd put the pockets on by hand. That was her job at home, sitting there stitching. Mm. And so clothes were very expensive. You'd have two suits, a good one and a bad one, and you'd wash them as infrequently as you could because it made them fragile. 
So for Squizzy to have lots of beautiful outfits. And also, we really understand right now, there was a pandemic underway. So people were walking around with masks on. There was a flu, right? Influenza. Was it Spanish flu? Which flu was it? Yeah, it was the Spanish flu. It was the influenza, yep. Okay, so people were scared of that. It was depressing. Everyone was staying inside. It was ruining businesses. And all of that was happening as it's happening right now too. So for him to be rich at that time was particularly notable. Absolutely. We don't see Squizzy take any form of employment until the very bitter end of his life. (laughs) Um, So he's never been known to have a job. So anything he's got. Wow. And he ends up with cars. He ends up, it's all come from your gotten game, you know. So we end up with Squizzy Taylor really known as you know, somebody that people were staring at him in the street and he stood out. He stood out like a sore thumb. Yeah. But he, in that time when Dolly Gray was assaulted, she disappeared very quickly. Now, I've been in touch with Dolly's family. I've also been in touch with Squizzy's family to his third marriage. And he has a daughter who is 97 and still alive. Really? Beyond belief. God. The family... Did what, and Dolly's family have done the same. I've been in touch with one of Ted Whiting's family. I've been in touch with one of Snowy Cutmore's family, who I'll get to shortly. But they all did more or less the same thing. The youngest generations who are in their twenties say, "I don't know anything about it, mate." The older generations who are in their sixties say, "Look, we really we're hardwired to duck and weave and hide from this." The oldest generation really are just ashamed. So it's very hard to get family law because a lot of them don't even know it to begin with, you know. Yeah. We get a story where Dolly disappears instantly. This poor woman. I mean, heaven only knows what injuries she was left with after that sexual assault. and Absolutely. Again, what PTSD and, you know. So then her first husband was killed in France. He was mm. he died from mustard gas. He got in his lungs and he couldn't breathe and he lang- languished for three days in hospital. <sighs> and his worldly effects were walked back to Melbourne and so so adequate was Do- Dolly's hiding abilities that the military couldn't even find her to give her the, the, the honours back. She was in Adelaide and that's where she spent her days, but she went really, really underground. Oh, so then Squizzy probably, I can't find any divorce information about Dolly, um, Squizzy probably uh, polygamously marries um, his second wife. They have a stillborn baby in that time, and that adds to that rage that he's got. But then he has a daughter with Lorna Kelly, and the the relationship breaks up not long after. It's a it's a short relationship. It's bitter. We really see Squizzy come to the public imagination and really capture things just before he meets his third wife. There's a building on the corner of. Flinders Lane and King Street, in that little area, there's two new buildings and there's a 7-Eleven. The third one is made of bluestone and it's still there. It's the same building. And a security guard had been just doing what security guards do. You know those little tickets of paper they put in the door? Yep. Right. So he'd done exactly that, walked past the door, and then he forgot something, went back, and it literally been minutes and the paper was gone and the door was ajar. And he thought to himself, as a good security guard, he thought, whoever's in there, they're still in there. Yeah, I don't want to see them. <laughs> so he went and got cops yep. and he stood and watched and the cops came and they came and they, they did a vigil all night but they couldn't. Now inside, it's a big room. Inside you've got tea chests. There's packing wooden chests and they're not in columns. They're higgledy-piggledy. And Squizzy managed to slip himself down in a triangular shaft between three boxes and really it was you'd walk past and think no human could be down there not realising how small he was, Yeah. <laughs> And it's only in the morning that a, a policeman with a hurricane lantern at daybreak saw a shuffle and they grabbed him. He displaced some fur coats, some fabric, 
normal things he was going to flog, right? <laughs> and they said, you know what, you're going to go to court. Here's your appearance date. And he went, he, he said, I'm not going. I'm just, and he absconded. He went on the run with his then girlfriend who was had just turned 16. Let's remember Squeezie's in his early 30s now. The news They stole female clothing from a boutique in Hawthorne for her at this time. And the police, uh, so the, the media commented and said, look, if they do catch him, she's actually going to have to be tried in the children's court. So, mm-hmm. like, it was creepy as hell back then. It was it was gross. And mm-hmm. people were calling him. And there, there's no forgiving yet another layer of what Squizzy Taylor was as gross as well. Mm-hmm. He's not pretending to be a good man at all. But they go on the run. Now, they meet this guy called Angus Murray. And Angus is an armed bank robber. He's escaped from the Geelong prison by chiseling out a huge bluestone block at the bottom of his bars, lowering it to the ground and running off. Now, Squizzy and Ida Pender is his new wife's name. He's not yet married to her. They're living in a house in St Kilda. And the police kick the door down and there is Angus Murray. But Angus has also managed to shoot a bank clerk in the meantime. He's dead. So Angus is now up for being hung in the Melbourne jail. So while all these court cases are raging around him, there come days where Squizzy's answering court hearings in the morning for one crime. He goes to the city court. Afternoon, he's at the coroner's court for another crime where he hit a woman in his car and killed her. In the evening, he's at the criminal court to face charges for harbouring a crook. But he loves every minute of it. He behaves like it's a pantomime. He, he gets off on this drama and the theatrics of it. He never, ever disappoints us ever for a second by giving into the temptation to go straight. <laughs> At no point does he ever think, I'll do the right thing. So Angus Murray, his mate, back in jail, so he decides he'll break him out. This reminds me of those years of watching Carl Williams, you know, strutting around out the front of the courts and those guys and the Morans. You know, it's so similar. And it's Pinky and the Brain stuff where he wakes up every day and says, I'm going to take over the world. Yeah. So yeah. he's facing all these charges and having daily court hearings. Mm. And then he goes and does another one. So they had come up with this incredibly elaborate plan to bust him out and they get caught. Squizzy is just, just seems to slip out of their reach every single time, you know. And you get this, this scenario where he's got the beautiful girlfriend, but he attracts the attention at this point of a movie producer. So he approached Squizzy and said, look, you're, you're like Al Capone and I reckon we can make a movie. They rented Caulfield Racecourse for three days, right? It was a big production. The guy who was doing the distribution for the media was based in George Street, Sydney, in a cinema. And I found a trade magazine at the time that said, if you rent these cans, we will give you 100 day bills, 50 posters, we'll send Squizzy to the launch to sign things. It, it was a big number, right? And again, this is like when the Undervalley series, the first one was screening and all the characters, or a lot of the characters portrayed in it were still alive and still committing crimes and still going to court. This is amazing. It's incredible. And then you you, you glance back now at the cops who who were watching this going over my dead body. Yeah. So then they passed laws that said, if anybody screens this, we will prosecute you for uh, giving money to the proceeds of crime because the only reason he's famous is because of being a criminal. Mm. So it was probably the only instance where Squizzy tries to go straight-ish. He tries to revive his movie career a little bit down the track as well, but (laughs) same thing happens. It did screen once in Queensland. (laughs) 
whenever he went up there to it, and he, you can do anything in Queensland. You I mean, can. Love you, Queensland. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, they it, it does spring yeah. once in Queensland. But Squizzy is really all things criminal at about this time, and he has this this baby with Ida Pender, and she's known as Babe Pender. A newspaper runs a, an interview with her in the first person, so it's a primary source talking about her and asking her questions. Look, she's seventeen. And she say she might as well have been saying, "I want to be a mermaid." Really, honestly, she's she's saying, "I grew up around the beach and I love swimming." And you know, it, it bless her little soul, yeah. right? Very innocent, but she has a baby squizzy a little bit later, and it's probably a time in his early forties where he he probably does that thing where he just you know oh, I'm forty six. I like being forty six. I'm just I grew into it, you know, but. I'm so tired now. <laughs> you know, he probably was the same. Uh, but he's still committing low-level crimes over and over again. But he gets a fruit shop in Richmond. And they were living above it, but they got stung for um, having 12 bottles of beer because that must have been a, a sly grog shop. So the cops were really on him. They were watching him. But then there's the final part of his life. You get this scenario where in Sydney, his brother Claude has headed up. In Sydney is also a guy called Snowy Cutmore. Now, Snowy has been around the criminal fraternity for a long time, and he kind of interweaves with the other criminals I've I've already mentioned throughout their careers. He's arrested in Sydney uh, with Long Harry Slater. He's arrested with Claude uh, in Maryborough for pickpocketing and beating a guy up and strangling him. He was also a flat-out psychopath. Like This guy was dangerous mean, liked hurting people a lot, and he's knocking boots with the uh, Sydney Razor Gangs. He's probably in and out of cohorts with Norman Brunn, who's the husband of Tilly Devine, and he falls out with Norman Brunn. Now, the media at the time and the police both said if Snowy Cutmore didn't shoot Norman Brunn, he absolutely knows who did and was probably there that night. Got to remember the Brun family is a very big criminal family. If you're ever in Geelong and anybody in Geelong, go and visit the uh, Geelong prison prison jail. There's a lady there who is the um, curator and the head historian called Deb Robinson. She also talks about how all the Brun brothers and dad all spent time in that jail. So they're dynastic. They've got descendants in jail now today. God. Right. So we're, we're talking generational Jeez. criminal behaviour, yeah? So the, the, the Norman Brunn is also World War One affected. He has no qualms shooting someone, harming someone, but he's shot dead. Squizzy gets out very publicly saying, and it's re- loudly enough that it's recorded in the media, whoever shot Norman Brunn, I'm out for you. I'm coming to get you. His brother Claude is up in New South Wales and part of that clique, and he goes to jail just before Squizzy dies because he breaks into a guy's house and he slashes him across the ear with a razor, he bashes his wife with a lemonade bottle and nearly cuts her ear off. But it's all probably related. Snowy comes back to Melbourne on the train with a guy called Roy Traverse. They come down together and later Snowy's wife and infant son come down and they, they all wind up at Snowy's mum's place. Now, Snowy's mum lives in a house at number 50 Barclay Street. It's no longer there. It's kind of, you know, 1970s double-storey Hawthorne brick flats. But she had a bluestone four-bedroom guest house, a, a DOS house, a boarding house, you know. So you get uh, Snowy and his wife and their baby sleeping in the same double bed in one room, Roy Traverse in another room, 
and another boarder in another room and mum out the back. They go to the, the Caulfield races a few days later and they come across Squizzy Taylor. They just happened upon him. Squizzy isn't liked at the racetracks because he burnt the Caulfield race course down. <laughs> oh, my God. He, he started doing the I'm a celebrity, don't you know, don't you know who I am? They, they said we don't care, chucked him out. Within 48 hours, two race courses, one in Tasmania and one in Victoria, both being burnt down. Wouldn't prove it was him, probably was. So he's not, they're, they're not thrilled to have him. What an asshole. Yeah. He's, he's mean, right? Yeah. But they see Squizzy and Snowy having a scream, blazing screaming match in the betting ring, throw them both out two days before his death. Mm. So then Squizzy and Roy Traverse and another bloke are seen on a Rathdown Street pub on the 27th of October, 1927, uh, in the early, about 5.30 p.m. in the drink. There's a bartender who believes she heard Squizzy say to Roy, you need to make sure you're, you're the one doing the shooting. So then they appear in another pub close by a short time later, and they've got a guy with the last name Hall, H-A-L-L. He's driving them, and he's a rental car driver. He's sitting out the front waiting for them to finish. Why are they going to different pubs? Probably looking for Snowy, but they're going from pub to pub. But they are drinking, so there's aspects to this that don't necessarily make sense from a forensics point of view. But they end up at 50 Barclay Street. And Mr. Hall is parked out the front. The other, the other mate is Squizzy standing at the front doing cockatoo lookout. Roy Traverse and Squizzy walk into the building. They walk down the hallway, past the bedroom on the right, and a door immediately opposite on the left. They get to the second set of bedrooms with a sunroom out the back. They turn left and they walk into the bedroom. As they walk in, on their left is the foot of the bed. Snowy's in bed, and again. All these years later, 10 years after it began, he's still got what well, he, the, the country's still suffering from a Spanish flu epidemic. This is another outbreak, and he's in bed with Spanish flu. What actually happened that night is somewhat of a mystery. I have a book coming out early next year, which is called The Third Person Shooter. And it talks about the fact that we've very quickly overlooked the fact that there was a third person in that room that night. Now, this, this is the first time I've actually ever broadcast. I haven't published this anywhere, so love that I can give this to your, your listeners because I love this show. This is this is one of the best true crime shows I've ever heard, so congratulations <laughs> to you. Thank you. But in that room, I believe what happened. Now, this is my own personal belief. I might be wrong, but I've enacted it in rooms with people. I believe Squizzy walked in that room, turned left, walked down beside the bed to the head of the bed. I believe Roy was trying to do one of two things. He was either trying to make peace as he stood at the, and he was trying to get Squizzy to talk over the differences, which is likely that Squizzy and Snowy were friends. I believe Squizzy pulled a gun or probably more likely Snowy pulled a gun from under his pillow. Squizzy probably pulled his gun out and shot Snowy's hand, because in the autopsy we see Snowy has a broken pinky finger, and the police found on the floor a piece of the cartridge clip from an automatic pistol, a Webley service revolver. The gun wasn't found in the flat. So then there's two uh, gunshot wounds into Snowy's body, and he's dead. And Squizzy sustained two shots in his right side. Old Mrs. Cutmore comes into the room at that time, Snowy's mum. She's shot in the shoulder, and I believe it's probably Squizzy that's shot her. 
and they all rush out the room. Roy Traverse exits out the back of the house and he pushes Snowy's gun under the back fence of the house over the back and he throws his gun into the toilet system. Goes straight to the police station, says there's been a shootout at 50 Barclay Street, get down there quickly, take a doctor. The newspaper report him as a hatless man, (laughs) a man without a hat. (laughs) That's how important hats were. An unknown hatless man called Roy reported this crime. Squizzy gets in the in the car and old Mr. Hall, the driver, drives them. Now they get to Johnson Street, which isn't far away, and his mate jumps out of the car because Squizzy's not going to make it and he doesn't want to be seen with a dead body. Squizzy's last words are, take me to St. Vincent's. The coroner's report is pretty accurate. He's not conscious pretty quickly. We find an, a fascinating first-hand diary entry from a, a nun who was a nurse with St. Vincent's who was on that night, and she says that he was wearing uh, yellow silk underpants. Oh, flash. But in his pocket is a gun that's been discharged recently. The gun that was found under the back fence is missing a piece of the clip and it matches the piece they found next to Snowy's bed. So we've got three guns, one shot by Snowy, one in Squizzy's pocket, and the third gun is found in the system. So it unpacks a scenario where Squizzy probably isn't shot by Snowy at all. He's shot by this third guy. Roy Traverse, look, by the time the police go looking for him, they've tried to pin it on a couple of brothers called the Kelly brothers. One of the Kelly brothers found his way to the hospital that night and he said to the doctor, and this is in the coroner's report, is Squizzy dead? And the the, the doctor says, you know he is. And he said, thank you. I'm not asking for myself. I'm asking for a boss. (laughs) So there's a lot of going on right now. The police pursue the brothers pretty doggishly, but it's pretty evident that they have alibis and they didn't do it. And by the time they catch Roy, he's up in uh, Albury trying to escape. They bring him back, try him, and it doesn't go very far. And to be honest, by the time it was over, the world had no appetite left for it. They just wanted to get it behind them. They just were like, he's done. We don't care. Just thank you. If anything, Chopper Reed syndrome, thank you for what you've just done for us. And off he goes. Well, Carl Williams syndrome, yeah. Very much. You're doing us a favour. Yeah. So the death of Squizzy Taylor, its only legacy was the young Ida Pender and and their baby. Look, her life was really tough. She got job after job where they'd go, you're Ida Pender, and they'd sack her on the spot. She went on to uh, more, she discovered Christianity. Uh, the family are devout Christians now. What I noticed seems to happen is that the money suddenly disappears in these situations. So these women who are married to men, gangsters, and there seems to be endless amounts of money. When the men are murdered, suddenly there is no money. And the women find out very quickly that they are on their own and they are penniless and they have to find their own way in the world. Is that what happened to Ida? Yes and no. I don't think there was any mystery to her where the money was. I think he was probably quite open with her about the money. But he says in a couple of in court hearings that are reported in the newspapers, he he barks at the police saying, you know what, if it wasn't for you mongrels laying charge after charge after charge on me, I, I've paid these lawyers and he turns to them. And he says, I've paid them. And he, I forget the statistic, but it's enough to buy two houses. So he's open about where the money's gone and it's this parade of court hearings. Yes. But I guess he was also making a lot of money at the same time. So the minute he's dead, that's the end of the yeah, absolutely. making of the money. Too, quite right. He says that too. But you get this, this scenario with all the descendants of the, the key players I've just mentioned where the dysfunction follows those families, right? They very seldom get away from it. And if they get away from it, it's through an extreme change. So they either become right-wing fundamentalist Christians. 
uh, one of the descendants of Ted Whiting becomes a lawyer. Um, one of the uh, Cutmore family is in forensics archiving, um, but the rest of them really do live with a, a thick blanket of dysfunction over their lives. So it, look, it's, it, the who is Squizzy Taylor, it's part invented. He writes letters to the newspaper like the postcard bandit, taunting the police. When he's on the run, he, he invents his own narrative to some part. But then by the time he doesn't want to be known and he really wants to be able to settle down, he can't. I think the, the Chow Hayes story is a fascinating one because if you're not familiar with Chow Hayes, uh, he's a fascinating crook, same era, who really liked hurting people. He was in Sydney, but Chow just got old and he got out of jail and looked, finished his days going up to blokes at the TAB saying, give me 50 bucks or I'll belt you. And we ask ourselves, if Squizzy hadn't gone out in a blaze, would we remember him? Because there was a lot of others. Right. But probably not. It's the fact that he went out the way he did. We absolutely wouldn't have remembered Snowy Cutmore. We may have remembered the Fitzroy Vendetta, but you'd have to find some history nerd like me who wants to really look into that. Thank you to our guest, Roy Malloy. There's a link in the show notes to help you buy his excellent book, Squizzy, The Forensics, The Man, The Vendetta. Thank you to patrons David Brennan, Stacey Serrati, Sarah, Catherine Turner and Carol Lay. And thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week. This has been another Smartfella production in conjunction with the Acast Creator Network. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. 
They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there.